Hi, and welcome to Declarations, where we look at human rights in your world. I'm Sarah Mohammed, and I'm a PhD student in politics and international studies here at the University of Cambridge. With every episode, we'll be exploring contemporary debates about politics and human rights with the people who study them and the people who fight for them, both here in the UK and around the world. Today, we're talking about race, racism, and borders, and how they pertain to human rights. What kind of borders are erected around the rights you have and the rights that you don't? And are human rights a language of liberation from structural oppression, or can it be an oppressive language in and of itself? And how do we decide? Who gets to decide? Joining us today is Dr. Monica Moreno-Figueroa, a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Cambridge and a fellow in social sciences at Downing College, Cambridge. Monica's research interests include the lived experience of race and racism, feminist theory, and the interconnections between beauty, emotions, and racism with a focus on Latin America. Also joining us today are our regular panelists, Niusha Bastani and Michael Barton. Well, I've been studying uh, sociology um, and developing this interest on understanding how racism works for around 20 years now. I'm very interested in the lived experience of racism, that is like the quality of racism, how racism feels, how racism looks like for the people that are at the receiving end of it. I, um, I am from Mexico and I wasn't aware of how much I was interested in this until I came to the UK and had the opportunity to study at Goldsmiths College and got to know a lot of uh, brilliant academics and read all this literature that wasn't available for me in Mexico because there's just no studies around that topic. It's not something that, uh, well, it's opening now, the field now in Mexico, but when I was studying, no. And I realized how much I needed that framework to understand how things were structured in my country and then also in similar experiences in Latin America. Um, so I studied, I started studying um, women's experiences, how it was for particular sets of women in different parts of the country to um, be in a country that sets itself as a mixed country, as a mestizo country, where everyone is mixed, therefore racism doesn't exist. So that's the kind of line of thinking. And that got me interested in this part of the lived experience. And slowly I've been trying to shift that uh, focus to uh, also include how is that experience happening in institutions, how racism, institutional racism works, uh, thinking about if it's possible to call it institutional, should we be thinking of structural, you know, what's the differences between those two things. And I'm also very interested now in also looking at the spaces of hope around racism. So I'm looking at anti-racist practices and discourses. I'm leading a big ESRC-funded research project on that, where we're a group of um, 12 people, um, well, actually 15 people, working in four countries, Ecuador, Colombia, Brazil, and Mexico, looking at the efforts and different organizing, you know, uh, of collective social movements, but also the governmental efforts, the legislations, and try to find spaces for thinking of this interruption of racism in contemporary society in Latin America. That's incredible. I love that idea of uh, these resistance movements interrupting the idea of racism in and of itself. Um, 
how what is the kind of language that is invoked by these resistance movements? I know the project is still ongoing, but what kind of languages of resistance are invoked by anti-racist movements in Latin America? Mm. Well, one of the first big questions that we have is if movements consider themselves to be anti-racist and use that language per se. And that's a bit, you know, hard because of, of this history. Not everywhere racism is recognized as such and not everywhere uh, there is a very clear line between like this is the, what we're doing is anti-racist. So it and also there are many uh, struggles that combine a lot of different oppressions, which anti-racism would be a part of, you know, as, as such. And racism will be part of the struggles that they are facing. So say a community looking at um, what we have termed a case of environmental racism not necessarily will phrase their struggle as such, but they're looking, there's, a, there's, there's something one of the postdocs working in the project has come up with, which is thinking around the, the grammatics, oh, no, the grammar of racism, of anti-racist struggle, mm -hmm. the different grammars of anti-racist struggle. So for example, that case of, of environmental racism is thinking about life, you know, like fighting for life, for their life and for life and having life. So they talk about accessing life and, you know, so life becomes a form of accessing a grammar of resistance and opposition where uh, their livelihoods are at stake and, but that they are a particularly racialized community that is being targeted. So we are trying to find the specific areas of all these different realities that can be thought of as racism mm -hmm. right because not everything they do and that's the kind of struggle right um, in places like brazil and colombia people have a very long tradition of talking about race and uh, it has been included in the census there are legislation so there's much more clarity of what would it be something anti-racist Places like Ecuador and Mexico, this case of environmental racism is in Ecuador, for example. It's a different story, a different strength of the struggle. Um, very hard, for example, to find examples in Mexico of organizations and of legislations that are particularly anti-racist, whereas you have the law in Brazil very clearly, right? So I think we are, that, that's what we're exploring. Maybe you want to interview me in a year's time <laughs> and I will be much more clear about the results. And uh, what we see is that there are different grammars, grammatics of anti-racism mm -hmm. and that are broader and that are not aligning to maybe what we think uh, that comes to our mind when we think of anti-racism, like the, so the, you know, the civil rights movement in the United States or other, or even Black Lives Matter, you know, there are different, that, that's what usually occupies our imaginary. And this project is what, is what it wants to also interrupt. Mm -hmm. It's like when we think of racism and anti-racism, we need to have a wider scope that includes all parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier that in your research you have been trying to move towards more looking at how racism is institutionalized and structural. So what are some of the ways in which that has come out in your research or how have you found that to manifest itself? Mm -hmm. um, I'm developing a project on 
two cases of what we wanted to explore as institutional racism that have to do more. Now we're realizing that now it's the end of it, the field work and the writing, that we were really talking about racism within state institutions. And particularly, we're looking at access to resources, a case of water, resistance around water, and the response of the government, the governmental institution uh, that looks after the, the water in Mexico. And the other is access to health. Right? So by looking at two particular cases, we were trying to see how can we say that this is not an issue of development and that is not an issue of saying the health case. It was about a woman uh, who, uh, after childbirth and a bad operation, a bad practice, she was left without mobility and not conscious. Well, alleged unconscious, we don't know, but she can't communicate and she can't talk and she can't move. And what is that? It was a, is it a gender issue? Is it a, a, what they call obstetric violence? Or is it racism, institutional racism? So we're trying to find the gap there. And there's something, and as well the case of the water, which was about a, a collective of community indigenous peoples wanting to be owners of their water because they, they were in a situation where the water was um, um, not, was affected by the different, you know, climate changes in the area. And they did all this work to revi revitalize the, waters, the water. So now they have a lot of water and then the government came in to say, oh, now we're going to regulate it and you have to pay fees mm -hmm. for the water that you yourself did all the work to get back, right? Mm -hmm. So their fight was for a consultation, that they were never consulted about this. And okay, so in those, in both of those two cases, we were trying to find what is racial about them. And although they are indigenous peoples, that's just that's not enough to say that because they're affected are indigenous people. Um, but what is interesting was to note how there there is in the treatment of them in the way that these institutions and the members of these institutions deal with with them. There is a certain despise, disgust, um, belittlement, um, just this mistreatment that is so pernicious. And you can so, for example, one of the uh, the one of the people, the the civil servant, looking at the water issue, would treat the people would say, "Well, you just just don't know. You don't really don't know. You know, we know." We're gonna care to tell you. We really want the best for you, and you just don't listen to us. You know that that kind of talk. You know, and you will see them because we did ethnographic approximation that in the meetings, all these indigenous people were coming there, and all the civil servants are on their phone. They are looking elsewhere. They are completely bored. They just don't want to be there. So you know, and then of course they just stop uh, there's no real dialogue you know that it seems to be like a wasted exercise of not listening to the or not giving credit that people have organized and they actually won the right 
to be consulted, mm. right? So you see that in that case. So we're trying to find the same with this woman um, that has this case uh, where she she lost all mobility and ability to communicate and have a, a, a life, actually, and all her family, how they've been affected. Uh, the roads were absolutely inaccessible. They didn't have the service in the in the clinics, and you just find so many levels where people where you see these people, indigenous peoples, are used for training. Other ones that are at the end. Other so I'm trying to trace the despise, if you see what I mean, because there's nothing else that can explain it. It's not poverty, just. Because then you enter into a situation of like, oh, let's invest money here, and it's not just that. It's like it's not even thinking of. So say um, we did a, a, a budget analysis of the government, saying how much money is invested here and how much money is invested in the north of the country, for example. Why there are five doctors per whatever number of people, and here there is like one, mm. and like that. Why, for example, the students that have less good grades, say, and less qualifications are sent to the most difficult places to do their service. Mm. Why the hospitals are only run by one doctor with a group of, say, 25 students that rotate every six months doing their practices. So if a young woman of 23 years old that comes out of medical school was the one who did this operation, are we going to blame that doctor? Or is there something deeper happening? There? I mean, how can you say, you know, so so there are many levels where you can trace the the spice, you know, that that just like the non-caring. Uh, so you've talked about this myth of the mixed society in Mexico, where racism doesn't exist and can't exist, um, but you've also obviously just demonstrated to us pretty persuasively that it it does exist. Um, in terms of activism, where does an activist who wants to organize around issues of race start? Like, How do you start that conversation in a society where there's a widespread belief that racism can't exist? Yeah, well, that's the key place, like, to understand that myth. You know, the, the, the racial project of Mexico and many countries in Latin America is based on mestizaje, you know, this idea of mixture and that mixture as an ideological, formal, official project of the state. Mm. So it's not just like culturally that we think, you know, it was a project of the state that was developed at the beginning of the 20th century, together with this idea of nation building and constructing the idea of, of who the Mexicans are. So it has been so successful that's one of the things, you know, it's a very successful project that has this weird, well, not weird, very clever uh, balance of inclusion and exclusion. Mm. So people, it's like an invitation for everyone to be part of it. You know? So we want everyone to join us, therefore everyone should mix. But exclusion because it's a certain kind of mixture, a certain kind of people, mm. etc. No, so it's central to the understanding of how racism operates in Mexico. So if you want to be working on this, well, first we need the information, the clear information about how that works, because it works at the, it has been, although there's been a big wave towards multiculturalism, 
from I mean so from the end of the 19th of the 20th century uh, the sediment of mestizaje is historical you know it comes from the colonial experience it then goes into this uh, nation building process and gets even more embedded so it's a very deep story there and a deep history you know? so that needs to be taken into account and the way I've been tackling this is precisely by starting from the experience of mixed race people or from the people who consider themselves the national people, the Mexican people, uh, that ones that don't need to, to acknowledge their racial position within the structure because they are like in the middle, right? They don't have to qualify. They don't have to say anything. They are just like Mexicans, right? And that's a disadvantage to these processes because who's going to lead these struggles? So you have indigenous people and black um, Afro-Mexican people. There are other groups, but they are more even smaller in smaller um, like Chinese people, Mexican Chinese, Mexican Japanese. You find, but really like indigenous peoples of the different um, different nations. You know, there are many different nations in the country. Like. 56 if I'm correct and um, they they are the ones who need that support but they are stopped all the time by the logics of mestizaje by this is a very strong force that just is always setting the terms of discussion of how we're gonna organize these debates so basically what I'm saying is it's about akin to starting with white people in the UK if you want to address racism or in the US or this context it is starting with the majority the ones who put themselves as the point of reference that means for activists that they start looking first at their own practice and their own positioning and who they are there's a lot of like oh yeah if whenever I say I study racism oh you look at uh, the experience of indigenous peoples and no I say I look at your experience mm -hmm. you know I'm not I'm looking at how you are just can't see it you know, and what is interesting about this, and very different to the UK or the US context, is that because of mestizaje, the majority also is implied very particularly in the experience of racism. So they will ex suffer it, if you want, and exercise it continuously. So it's not that you have a group of black people or a group of indigenous people, brown people, that are in communities together um, protecting themselves from white supremacy. Mm. And then you have groups of white people attacking these groups. No. It's like in the same family, you have the darker one and the lighter one. And the lighter one gets a bit more opportunities, has a bit more easier life, but not as much as the lighter one of the other family that is even lighter. And so you, that, that confuses a lot of people and breaks down solidarity because why would you do anything if you have a little bit more privilege because you're a little bit more lighter in this context right so they're not it's not that they're white and black people they are just lighter than or darker than in particular contexts and that makes uh, it's very difficult for political organization because people just defer it to the extreme others the indigenous or the black that also struggle to recognize themselves because they're 
the, this language of mixture and of belonging is quite strong. And also like really in the experience, everyone has mixed heritage mm -hmm. right? in the, in, at the end of days, you know? Um, so that's very hard. And, and, and that's why it doesn't work sometimes because the activists, the people of the social movements are usually middle-class, well-intentioned people mm -hmm. from the cities, urban, mestizos, that would need to start questioning themselves. I'm interested in this piece that you talk about, this distinction between um, how racism is produced in the global north um, and in the global south. So in a context like what you were just, the, the way that you distinguish between um, like the United States, for example, where you have like, um, like distinct separate segregated communities, um, but that uh, specifically in Mexico, um, it's more, it's far more interrelated than that and that people are operating not just within, uh, within community but also within certain logics that bind them together as well. I'm interested in the ways that, um, the ways that race making, like discourses or language or literature about race making in the global north is inapplicable perhaps in certain circumstances or the ways that people try to make that travel. Um, because for example, when, I, when I'm trying to speak about uh, colorism in the Somali community or when I'm trying to speak about gender issues in the Somali community, I'm often affronted with this kind of, um, first of all, you're just trying to import your Canadian kind of like, you know, cultural relativist kind of argument, but more importantly, kind of an assumption that that is the moment in which everyone wants to claim, oh, we're all black. You know what I mean? But when you're praising the light-skinned daughter and you're literally saying, don't go into the sun, and these are the kind of ways that this kind of race-making and myth-making is reproduced, that's not the moment in which that happens. So I'm wondering um, how you have to modify or indeed like create a whole new kind of framework of race-making in your work. Well, we need to... Well, a good way to start is to think about racial projects, right? Each country or each region context will have different racial projects. They are very much marked by histories of colonialism, right? And but they will have very particular, you know, um, applications and developments. So one big distinction I think what has helped me to look at it is how the Spanish and Portuguese empire had particular roots, and you can see that in the countries that were colonized by those countries in the 15th and 16th centuries and throughout the the early 19th century, right? And the British and European and French, German, other empires that were later. Because I think that marks very big distinction. I say sometimes very simplistic, but I think it helps as a caricature to think that the Spanish and Portuguese arrived thinking, I want your land, so I'm going to have your children, and then the land is mine mm. through that so there was a law of, at, the, at the beginning although it was prohibited at times an encouragement of mixture with the populations with the local populations that were left because of course there was also a big massive and uh, you know killing of people and some call it genocide you know some just a devastation of the population because of their con con conquest uh, and the colonization process. Whereas the British, right, would have thought necessarily, well, I'm just going to have your land. Mm. I don't need to have your children. <laughs> Not necessarily. So 
and that one drop rule that that whole idea of not miscegenation that also aligns with the development of racial science of scientific racism right that was very much looking for purity and so those that thing already sets up differences so there are different racial projects uh, that we need you know and but the other the other part is you always have to test it i mean I really don't buy that nationalist discourse, which I think is very not, it's a defensive mechanism almost. Like, what are you gonna tell us? You know, like you're bringing something from abroad, this is not coming from here. Mm-hmm. I think that has to do from, you know, different kind of even academic debates or, but it's all useful. You know, I always see like, so for example, I use one idea from developed by David Goldberg applied to the US. And my first question is to what extent it's useful mm-hmm. for the Mexican context, mm-hmm. right? The idea of racelessness. So that ra- that racism somehow said to be um, done with, mm-hmm. you know? And that it's been incorporated so that we don't need to talk about race anymore, right? Like raceless states that have already said we've done that work, mm-hmm. right? So it's another way of disavowing racism and to stop the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, it is useful, right? It is useful, although it doesn't come of the same context and it helps me to look at different things. So, and, but always, I mean, I would see there's half of, um, there are many things, um, many forces say stopping the conversations because it is, uncomfortable it is about tackling privileges about check you know being critical and that will make you know so any excuse to stop it will be fine from like that doesn't apply Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) onwards onwards right yeah yeah but also more in and that that was in the academic world right? right but in everyday conversations and in the case of mexico it's very common that people would say racism in the u.s and racism is about black, mm-hmm. right? So to integrate how racism is about indigenous peoples, for example, that you wouldn't consider as black, uh, is very difficult, mm-hmm. right? And that's, you know, that's a language of culture and ethnicity mm-hmm. as two different things, right? Mm-hmm. So that, another way of stopping the conversation. So racism has that power, in a way, of pervasively stating ways in which discursively and practically the conversation is stopped constantly, mm-hmm. right? So you need to be keeping very aware of how it not only stops it, but also frames what is possible to do right. and to say mm-hmm. in its context, right? But we need, they're all empirical questions. We would need to think about, well, in Somalia, why, why would it be hard to recognize colorism within black communities mm-hmm. right or not or not black communities but amongst people mm-hmm. that are seen as black by particular other people right, right? that they might not see themselves as black mm-hmm. um i mean th- there's a lot at stake i remember and maybe this doesn't apply to kind of big country or um, co- um phenomena but more like everyday conversations and everyday practices um i remember talking um, to one of my colleagues about my dis- my exasperation of people not recognizing that what they were talking about was racism, mm-hmm. you know. And then it was like, well, maybe that the, the discussion went into maybe it hurts 
so much, you know. And like we would, we shouldn't underestimate the the way that racism has for people that have been racialized negatively, right? We've all we are all racialized. Some are privileged by it so much that they don't even have to worry of thinking about it. But other people, it's like if I accept that 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 happened to me is racism, I have to accept that I was located at the bottom of a particular hierarchy, that I'm seen by others as I'm not a worthless person. I'm not even a person. I don't deserve. So it's, it's even sometimes I could think a very insensible and a little bit racist demand of people of color or black people or indigenous people to also have to come up with the perfect rationale for why they leave the situation that they leave, mm-hmm. right? It's part of the same process, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So then, again, the conversation is about the ones that are targeted by racism mm-hmm. and not by the ones that are benefiting of racism. So sure. how do we shift that conversation so that everyone is involved? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is it is it is contextual, definitely. One thing we've been grappling with a lot over the podcast um, that I think comes out in what you just talked about as well is kind of universalism versus context. So through what you just explained, clearly context matters, but also there are some tools that you can take from one place to another and they would still be useful. So I'm wondering to what extent do you think the language of universalism would be helpful in getting solidarity from people who are not being directly impacted by racism and getting them involved and getting people who are not directly impacted to understand that they already are involved and implicated in these processes. Um, Because on the one hand, universalism can go the other way where we start saying, you know, we're all human, um, we're all equal, and then you kind of overlook the ways in which you need to address specific oppressions and address specific historical injustices. Mm. On the other hand, it's a way in which people can understand that they're part of this process and that you know they should be doing their part so what do you think about that well there are various levels to that question one i think is we need to question the idea of privilege i think that's a major problem when we talk about it and i think i even said it myself of some are targeted and some are privileged, right? That's kind of how, how that line goes. So the ones that are privileged don't have to bother about it and we need to bring them into the conversation. And I think there we're making a bit of a mistake because, it, and it depends how our understanding of racism, what our understanding of racism is. Because if we think of racism as a relation of power and a distribution of a good life, you know, or distribution of opportunities, then everyone is part of it, mm-hmm. right? Everyone, I say everyone has a role in the circulation of racism. Mm-hmm. But if we are more clever at finally weaving in our argumentations that what we think is privilege is actually not privilege, then maybe can start real that maybe the people that we usually think are privileged can start realizing how much their experience has been diminished by their their place they are in the racist um, circulation mm-hmm. or in the circul- in the operation of racism. Mm-hmm. So if you say if you if if we were able to say to someone you have been 
taught, conditioned or trained to despise someone or to hate someone, right? How did they did that to you? How how what did it what does it take for a, a person to do that? To get to that and to a group of people, to a collective, right? Maybe then could follow from that that the world that you present as a world that should be the world for everyone is actually not very desirable. Mm. Maybe not even for you. You might be thinking, you know, maybe there's something more, right? An alternative. And it's not, I'm not it's, we can see it clearly with the men and women debate, with the gender most basic debate where it's like, if masculinity now has been questioned, you know, we can see the problems that men suffer and the issues, and women have been clear saying, we don't want to be like men. We want just a fair share, a different kind of organization. So basically saying we don't want to be men, right? Because the, the place, the role of men is not necessarily the best place for humans, or for everyone, right? Well, the same. You can say the same exactly. And we still don't do that shift. We don't do that same connection. Why would black people want to be like white people? Why? No? So, but immediately it's like, oh, because that's where civilization is. That's advancement. That's like where reason is. That's where develop, whatever, you know? And you could just go on. But so then a, a very important, we need to contradict that message. We need to interrupt that message. And we know with environmental concerns, it's very clear. I mean, the, the proposal of societies that capitalism has advanced is ruining us. It's a very serious problem. Enviro I mean, climate change is, I've just been learning about it, and I'm like, gosh, we just don't get it. Mm -hmm. How serious, vital this is, like urgent, right? Why do we think that that is the society that we all want? So we need to question that privilege, mm -hmm. that packaging and that plastic and that gasoline and that cars and that that kind of life is a life. So I think that's the way. That's a that's a very important starting point. Because if not, you don't shift the balance. You know, where's what's the direction? Okay. So from that. Right. Sorry, so as many levels, I think the answer. Going back to universalism, I well, I I wouldn't necessarily go into this thing of we are all humans, we should all love each other, and we are all good people. But there's a part where I do want to go there, mm -hmm. in the sense of we share more than don't. Mm -hmm. Human beings share more genetically in abilities in, I mean we we are one thing we are one one people and how do we get from that specific context where we are located in the specific platforms that we are have we are given or we are we were born into to a situation where we understand that commonality mm -hmm. so more than asking for a universal take i'm thinking of yeah, maybe asking again the question about the human. What do we think a human is? And why don't we grant that character to every single person? Mm -hmm. Including the people who think of themselves to be privileged. Because they're not. 
they are missing out. Not only is like, what have they done to you to make you hate others? Mm-hmm. Say that's just one, maybe a bit. I'm trying to be a bit melodramatic there. <laughs> well, not melodramatic, but it's like mm. it, it's, provocative. Well, yeah, that's I think so. I mean, yeah. it's just it's, just, it's yeah. impressive. Mm-hmm. If, if you think about it, if you think about a child mm-hmm. that is made to believe that, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. But then, of course, then we're talking about models of life alternatives of life you know of possibilities for all imagine and 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 this is how oppressive or oppression works right and oppressive societies have done that class makes us divides us race divides us gender divides us it's like we need to start thinking what's going on with these divisions like who who's benefiting here how is it that this society is moving us in a way and we just keep going along <laughs> with the divisions. Mm-hmm. So I guess my take would be, how can we think about commonality and going across these divisions? And like, we, we have advanced so much in studying gender differences, you know, sexual differences, class differences, to know they are social constructions. Mm-hmm. They serve purposes of distributing privilege and power. They don't necessarily take us to a good life. Why? Why we keep doing it? I just <laughs> seems so obvious. <laughs> no, but there's things that stop us looking at it. That's an excellent point, and I really appreciate the idea that it's something that we, like, through acad- academia, then has been at the forefront of that conversation, which is understanding the the social construction of identities, of gender, of race, all of those things, and that that has been quite useful therefore um, when making the case on the streets on how on in anti-racist activism and practice um, that not only are we one but that uh, the ways that we are dividing ourselves don't particularly make sense I think which points to the fact that then the university space and the kind of knowledges that we produce are quite important Um, so here in Cambridge uh, there's like a movement to attempt to uh, decolonize the university and so there's lots of working groups in different departments trying to determine exactly what that means. Mm. Um, and so, and there's a tricontinental tea as well tomorrow. Um, but dealing with these ideas of decolonizing the university, then obviously the first natural question is, what is colonial about the university? What is problematic about the ways that um, uh, instruction happens, the patterns of knowledge production um, and dissemination, who gets to access these spaces? I was wondering if you could just let us know about what you think about this kind of project and whether you think it's an important one. Yeah, well, definitely, I think it's an important one to question. I'm very involved with it. Um, well, I think applies the same thing about privilege, right? Like these universities set up as the most privileged place and people even always talking about that. Oh, I'm so privileged to have this education. We're so privileged to be here. And and um, yeah, when I say I work at Cambridge University, it's like oh my God, you're so privileged, you know all that. <laughs> and but if we start questioning the idea of privilege, we can start seeing how well how these ideas are built, how colonial is the space in the sense of excluding people of the ways things are taught of the I mean this appeal to tradition in a in a way that stop us thinking, reflect um, flexibly, 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about, I don't know if that could be, we can think of the colonial in the university in terms of inflexibility, right? That we can't shift things, we can't move, we can't decide to do it in a different way. We don't take into account young people's voice, although this is for young people, you know? Um, we include them. Uh, I was just thinking, and maybe this is just too much, but I was like, you know, there's like always a reserve agenda and an unreserved agenda in the in the discussions. And young people, the reps are in the res- in the unreserved agenda. But there's so much stuff going on that they should be also telling us what they think, and not only telling us, being but participant, but but the institution that is an institution for young people has no young people in its core Mm -hmm. of decision making Mm. right Mm -hmm. so that's that's very that's very tricky so there i think there's a part of how can we bring and think about flexibility um invention creativity you know i think that i i've been struggling with the word decolonizing and thinking if that is the way we're gonna effectively communicate these efforts Mm -hmm. And what what is their reach? And I'm thinking of because we are academics and we like terms. <laughs> if decentering could be a more inclusive word that thinks of decentering everything from decentering the the classroom practice, uh, who teaches and who learns, and you know decentering the ways the examinations are done, the seminars are done, the supervisions. Uh, Decentering the reading list, decent, and then of course you include the decolonizing. You know, of course, like, can we decenter the authors to move to other authors? Can we, you know, that kind of as a tendency, as a force of like, just let's move around. There's just like, yeah, you know, almost like flexibilizing or just being, you know, um, looking. So I think that looking for other points of view, other starting points, right? for all our discussion from the running of the university to the teaching and the I think the more we could bring the young people of this university at the center of it mm-hmm. and do that decentering in that way you know um, the more this is going to move forward mm-hmm. uh, but it's hard mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard but not impossible that would be my take the more I trust on the young minds in the classroom, the better the class goes for everyone. The more I learn, you know, as a lecturer, the more everyone is happy mm-hmm. and satisfied. And they think they are, they are given a space for their mind. You know, I feel that I think I think that decentering, decolonizing, will imply that all the lecturers, that the teacher in front of the classroom, is able to believe that there are minds here yeah <laughs> that people have a mind you know that mm-hmm. we have a mind and that mind is powerful mm-hmm. it's already powerful mm-hmm. we're not forming the mind mm-hmm. right we're giving information that their capacity like young people's capacity like everyone i mean yeah but young people's capacity is gonna put together do things with it, turn it around. That's what we want, right? Not just to form you, you know. Like, that's not, you're formed. You know, young people are already formed. They, 
you know, we all arrive here with with a, 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 to start university with ideas, with clarity, with projects, with dreams, mm -hmm. everything, right? So there's a lot to change mm -hmm. uh, in terms of that. So I think this centering could be maybe an interesting word to explore and see if that invites more people. I'm aware as well that decolonizing scares some people mm -hmm. and I'm always thinking well how can it be inclusive as well of those that get scared mm -hmm. and just say like calm down. It's not just decolonizing. Mm -hmm. It's everything. It's everything. <laughs> you thought we were just going to decolonize? We're coming for your house. We're coming for everything. <laughs> just chill. Yeah, just relax. We, it will be unrecognizable when we're finished. <laughs> yes. It's true, though. So what do you think are some of the institutional barriers to decentering in a university? Because I feel like in some ways these conversations are new and gaining more traction. And in some ways they've been going on for a really long time. Um, and obviously, you know, change in any part of society is hard. But what do you think specifically in a university makes these things stick like a one-centered way of thinking about things one certain mm. one-centered narrative of understanding how knowledge should be made mm. i mean one thing you mentioned is you know just even the exclusion of students from decision-making processes to some extent but i'm wondering if other examples come to mind i mean maybe we shouldn't start with the obstacles but think about social change in time maybe mm. and how we have different perspectives of when things change and when they don't. Um, I remember listening to Angela Davis. Oh yeah, I had her surname and her first name. Well, okay, so I remember listening to Angela Davis saying that we have a very little perception of time and we get desperate and we think change is like, should happen tomorrow, literally. Like, we want to see that within this academic year, there are new reading lists in the whole university. Mm. Well, that's not going to happen mm. in this room. But the fact that Sura and I are here, mm. that's massive. Mm. Think about the colonial processes. 50 years ago, you wouldn't be here. Mm. Maybe a man. Mm. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Mm. You know, a black Mexican woman teaching in the university. Of course. I'm saying these are little examples and it could be criticized as tokenistic but there is something about change that we need to understand so that we gain perspective and we are strategic because what I'm very worried about this decolonized frenzy that we are in is how sustainable it is and who's gonna give up first and who's gonna be left standing and what's gonna happen in between so how are we not going to exhaust ourselves and so I think there's something about that so strategy is important mm, I guess the obstacles I mean the big obstacle is of course fear fear of change fear of like an idea of how things should be you know and that so I think having small pilots demonstrating and I think that you can see that that there are faculties there are well, not faculty, certain departments, certain people that are already doing things, mm. right? So we need to put that as good practice in a way and, and showcase those examples and just look, nothing happened. Nobody died in that classroom because <laughs> there was a different reading list. Mm. 
Look at the exam performance of those students. Oh, look, oh, they did pass. You know, so you start, you just start saying it's okay in a way. It's almost like, look, so what we need, so we need to collect those good experiences, showcase them, support them, encourage them, I think. And there are initiatives, you know, like the, the colonizing the curricular faculty initiative that comes from that crash uh, um, research group that we had. Uh, sociology is doing this decolonizing sociology we have a website we have a working group it's like really going very well students are organized in that meetings we have faculty and and postdocs PhD and fields and undergrads together working uh, developing a model of workshop that then can be passed and we are setting ourselves like this idea we are going to develop tools and model become a model that says, look, it works, and then to be able to pass it on. Mm -hmm. right? So I think there, yeah, there's a lot of fear. And then people are a bit lazy, right? This is gonna require that we prepare again our teaching, that we start again doing reading lists, that the library has to maybe chuck a lot of books and get a lot of new books, mm -hmm. or just find more space to have more books, mm -hmm. right? So there are, well, I'm not saying that people are lazy, lazy, I didn't mean it in that. Mm -hmm. It's like an inertia aspect. Yeah, but that we just need, we're going to need to work hard. Mm -hmm. no, and we are so stretched. I think being stretched is very hard. I find that as a just a, one of the very few members of staff of color, it's very hard. We're required to... Um, do a lot of things, we're excited, I want to do all this work. And I'm thinking, I need now like almost like a personal assistant to help me, you know? But that's not how it's set up. It's like, so we are working with structures that had a different subject in mind, mm -hmm. doing particular things. That's not what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So the structure of the university, the way it's set up, many parts, I make it very difficult. I'm just thinking we're, with all my colleagues, we're talking a lot, like emails. Like emails are just taking over our lives. Mm -hmm. Very hard to keep up with them. Very hard even to open them, you know. And then all this idea that just because an email is sent, you somehow agree to whatever the content it it's there without you having, you know, there's something that, like, well, I sent you an email and I'm like, well, that's, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? But, but, you know, so there are many things that were not considered in the 19th century or I don't know, in whatever century. And so there's that dance, you know, and of course we want to keep some lovely traditions that are really exotic I would say you know of this university very interesting to look at and to be part of and it's fine you know but we also need to be flexible I just think that is a major obstacle if you ask me flexibility to deal with the demands that we have today and and the, the kinds of knowledges we want to produce and the kinds of people we want to foster mm -hmm. right um, and well, we need more people of color, mm -hmm. that's for sure. The university, well, I, one of my roles is to be the university race equality champion. And we're having meetings with the vice chancellor, with all the heads of school, discussing, you know, 
what's going on. And one after a survey was made, and we're looking at numbers in the university, it's like we have um, we, we have to we don't have the thirteen percent of BME staff that we should have, yeah. right? And and that's not like um, in in general, in average, in every department, in every school, there should be thirty percent of faculty, and you know, so there should be. I mean, I would like it to be, and I think yeah. that would be because that's the national average. That's a good way of like mm-hmm. measuring ourselves against. You know, not not that I came up with a number. And there's a lot of things to work towards that, but but that is important, I think, because it will pull more students, it will pull more dynamics, you know. But we also need flexible teachers, you know, that are not just faculty of color will be necessarily flexible, not because you are of color you're gonna be having this perspective, right? But we need flexible teachers that are willing to try things out. Mm-hmm. You know, I've come up with this crazy idea of having a minute silent every twenty minutes within the lecture, mm-hmm. or seminars or discussions, and everyone freaks out because they don't know what to do in that minute. And I'm like, it's, and look, I'll just share this experience as as a decentering practice in the classroom. It's about first recognizing people that English is not their first language. Mm. There is an assumption which is very oppressive that you come here, you must know English to the perfection, you have to let go of your language and let go the way your language is organized and it makes you form from ideas to sentences to expressions and uh, please try that it doesn't show. And that goes for accents in the UK with English accents, you know, how people struggle to just be found out they are from a particular region in the country to people that are coming from other countries. So the idea of the minute silence is so that the people who are doing all that extra work of constantly interpreting in their heads, checking for words, have a rest, but also to everyone to have a rest. Mm-hmm. You know, just have a rest of your mind and I've done that in meeting research meetings or two or three day research meetings so every 20 minutes and we have such a good energy you know we just kind of keep going and in the class you can see it too people kind of keep going but then people freak out like oh no we don't have time for wasting a minute in <laughs> silence you know <laughs> but we, we can try but you need to be flexible you need to be willing to have a, have a go at the end, you might decide you don't, yeah. or you do. Or do. Just one final question after that amazing conversation. Um, what's one takeaway that you would think that the audience would want to have? Um, one thing that if you wish that you could write it on a piece of paper and everyone on earth would memorize it <laughs> and they would believe it, what, what would you have them believe? Oh, no gosh. pressure. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Um, well, maybe that racism is everyone's business. Decolonize your mind. <laughs> and decenter your mind as well. <laughs> Thank you so much, Monica, for your time today. That was an illuminating conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Declarations, Human Rights in Your World. Like, share, and subscribe, and follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud for every new episode every week. 
Um, you can also find us online at Facebook at Declarations Podcast and on Twitter at Declarations Pod. From the whole team, thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>